One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from the war zone, delve into the law and ethics of precision weapons, and we're on the ground at the NATO summit in Madrid. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 29th of June, day 126. Today I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, Assistant Foreign Editor Katie O'Neill, and, joining us from the NATO Summit in Madrid, Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols. I started by asking Dom and Katie for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody from the NATO summit in Madrid. Apologies if there's any background noise. There's a few people wambling around here. Um, So the the news from the from Ukraine has been mainly uh, around the fallout from the the missile attack on the Kremenchuk uh, city uh, that hit the hit the shopping mall there, more of which I'll speak about a little bit later. But we think the the toll from that is 18 killed and it's now up to 60 injured. Um, That's that's a feature of, of what we've been seeing recently and we're going to see more today's uk defense intelligence estimate says that um that is likely to be the shape of of russian attacks from from now on that uh, they are increasingly reliant on these long-range fires but they are running out of precision guided munitions and uh, having to rely on these these very old and we think this the missiles that hit hit this uh, the shopping mall were, were, from the 1960s i mean very very old technology and i'll speak a little bit later about about what uh uh, what precision means in military terms and how it's calculated. Um, but that's been the, the main fallout. I'll, I'll let Katie come in just for a uh, give you an update from uh, Madrid. Hi. So, yeah, on those missile strikes, a lot of dialogue around those today coming from both Ukraine and from the British Ministry of Defence. Zelensky in his overnight address posted a video of the attack, which very clearly shows a missile striking the shopping mall. Uh, Russia has flat out denied that it struck the shopping mall. It's also claimed that the shopping mall wasn't, you know, somewhere where civilians would gather, saying that it was somewhere that Russia, uh, the part of me that Ukraine was using to store various weaponry. Um, but Zelensky has posted this video, which shows a missile very clearly striking the shopping centre. Uh, and in it, he says that it is a targeted and deliberate attack. That sort of contrasts with what the MOD is saying this morning. They are saying that there's a possibility that the centre was not the intended target. 
of the missile uh, strike. They're saying that the Russians were potentially trying to target an oil refinery that was nearby. Um, not definitively saying it, they're just saying it's a possibility that uh, that Russia didn't mean to uh, hit this shopping mall. Um, as Dom was was saying, this is kind of an issue about these precision um, missiles uh, that's kind of rearing its head now. The point that the MOD was making was that uh, it, potentially this missile was intended for an oil refinery or some other infrastructure uh, strategic base. But because the missiles that Russia has left in its gift are outdated and they're not these sort of high precision um, missiles capable of, of really hitting and zoning in on intended targets, the MOD is warning that more civilians could be killed um, as a result of Russia running out of these sorts of missiles. So, uh, yeah, I know that we've discussed Kremenchuk for a couple of days, but uh, it, uh, as Dom has said, it sort of still continues to be rumbling on today. And Katie, can I just stay with you? There's been some uh, diplomatic uh, developments. Uh, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, has been having a go at Vladimir Putin, Russian president. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, some quite colourful language being deployed from Boris. He was speaking to a German broadcaster last night. Uh, he is there for the G7 summit. And uh, he was speaking about Vladimir Putin in quite personal terms. A couple of days ago, he was uh, sort of filmed speaking alongside Trudeau, kind of poking fun at uh, Putin, saying that, you know, if they need to be seen as strong leaders, do they have to take off uh, their tops and ride around horseback like he has been known to do? And he was asked about those remarks by this German broadcaster, and he sort of doubled down on them. He said that toxic masculinity was to blame for this war, uh, which he called a crazy macho war. And he also suggested that the war wouldn't be launched by a woman, so that if, if Putin was female, he wouldn't have gone ahead with, uh, with his invasion of Ukraine. So quite colourful language there. Um, And then separately, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, was asked about this today, and he also seemed to to balk back um, Boris's line and uh, launched some quite personalised attacks against Putin, in which he said that he had small man syndrome, um, and he has a toxic view of the world. And those were elements that led to his decision to invade Ukraine. Thanks, Casey. Well, let's let's move on from that to the big news um, from the NATO summit. This is that Finland and Sweden uh, have been given the green light to join uh, NATO. Uh, This is after Turkey has dropped its opposition to their membership. Uh, Katie and Dom, um, can you talk us through this? Yeah, so this this came out last night. We weren't expecting it. We were all just about to head off for tapas and then it all suddenly suddenly erupted. Um, uh, We weren't expecting anything really uh, until today. Now, we we, we we did think, the pundits did think, that, that something was going to come out of this summit because if, if they hadn't, if the leaders had met, so Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, had met with the um, leaders of Turkey, Finland, Sweden, um, you got Joe Biden in town, obviously, and the, and the rest of the NATO leaders, if they'd not come up with something, then, I mean, for very good reasons. These things don't always happen. Um, there are many uh, hurdles to get over. But if they'd not come away with something from this summit then it would have been played, the narrative from Russia would have been that, uh, that there were massive divisions and it was a, it was a huge snub. So the fact that, 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 that they met in the first place kind of hinted that something was going to happen. Huge amount of work behind the scenes, obviously. And we know that um, President Erdogan of Turkey uh, spoke to Joe Biden a couple of days ago. Um, they actually met this, this morning. But yeah, so last night, um, President, Turkey, uh, President Erdogan of Turkey, uh, Sally Ninister, President of Finland, and uh, Magdalena Andersson, Prime Minister of Sweden, met with Jens Stoltenberg last night. And uh, they, they thrashed out a deal which was signed by the, the, the foreign ministers of those of the three countries. And basically what's happened is 
Sweden is going to change its terrorism legislation. Um, it's going to come into force next month to, to assuage some Turkish concerns over the PKK, which, uh, which Turkey and other countries around the world have prescribed as a terrorist organization. Um, it means that, the, that Sweden and Finland are here today. They are here as, as invitees. Um, they don't get to sit in on, on everything because they're not yet members of the club, obviously. And so there are some things, um, particularly around the nuclear issues, that they, they are not privy to. But they are here as invitees. Um, and uh, and it still needs ratification. Their their sort of accession to NATO is not guaranteed until all the member states ratify. But that's seen as a sort of technical step, and there's there's very little in the way now. Um, now the text of the agreement it was it was quite pointed. They said that Finland and Sweden will will quote extend their full support unquote to Turkey in matters of national security. It confirmed the PKK was a prescribed organisation, uh, and in what's seen as a key concession. Uh, said that, that Finland and Sweden will, will, quote, not provide support, unquote, to the Syrian Kurdish Democratic Union Party, that's the Syrian branch of the PKK, and the People's Protection Units, the, the YPG. Now, interestingly, the YPG have been very active in the fight against Islamic State in Syria and were the, were the force, the anti-ISIS force, that were supported by many in the West. So um, some major, major concessions there. Um, we shouldn't forget Sweden is home to about... 100,000 Kurdish refugees and and Turkey has long called for the extradition of a number of individuals it says are linked to the PKK or the Syrian YPG. So so quite a few moves there on that front. Some other bits and pieces, I mean, no not, not less, no less important, but um, it also says that, that lifted the, any um, national arms embargoes relating to sales to Turkey um, and also uh, tightened up about how extradition requests would be would be viewed. So so this was seen as a major. Uh, well, a major result for NATO. I mean, there's, there's uh, as in all negotiations, it's it's just sort of shades of winning and losing. I don't think anybody's unhappy with this deal, um, unless some of the, some of the individuals in those in those groups. Uh, but it was seen as a as a necessary concession from Sweden in particular, but also Finland in order to get um, Erdogan's uh, Erdogan's sort of thumbs up. There's still some question about um, American F-16 fighter planes. So you may remember there was a big old spat a couple of years ago when, when Turkey bought the S-400 air defense system from Russia. And they also wanted to buy the F-35 stealth fighter plane um, from, from the U.S., and the US and the other NATO allies said, no way, um, we're not going to have the F-35 hooking up to a system that has an S-400 in the, in the network because who knows what's going to be hoovered out and sent back to Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the deal was, if you want, you can't have both, you know, t- take your pick. And Turkey said they want, they still want the S-400, so they were, they were kicked out of the, of the F-35 program. Obviously, that didn't, that didn't go down well in Turkey and, and led to a lot of these issues here. Um, and it was it was thought that in a phone call a few days ago between Erdogan and, and Joe Biden that um, there may be some deal here that Turkey gets F-16 fighter jets. I mean, very, still very capable fighter jets, um, but not the F-35s. So that that may well have been a, a bit of a sweetener for the deal. But it was um, yeah major major news for the alliance that will take take them up to up to uh, 32 members. And the, the point I've made before that effectively creates. Um, a NATO lake in the Baltic Sea. So Russia in that area, particularly the exclave of, of Kaliningrad, and please don't make me try and explain what an exclave is again because I got myself in all sorts of trouble last week. Um, but Kaliningrad in particular, now um, surrounded by NATO, it increases, it doubles, in fact, the, the land 
border that NATO has with with Russia, because it's about 1,300 kilometres at the moment, and that is what what what, uh, what Finland will, will bring as well. So it doubles the border there. Um, and and as the, the point that's been made by many many leaders, that Putin went into this Ukraine war saying he wanted he wanted less less NATO threatening him and, and looming over him and all the other nonsense that he came out with. Well, he's just got the exact opposite. And, and it now, the, the, now, the way looks clear now for Sweden and Finland to join NATO and there doesn't seem to be any other, any other hurdles in the way. And it was, um, it was a, a, quite, a, quite a boon to kick off this, uh, this summit. Thanks, Tom. Don't worry, we can leave the geography lesson for when you're back. Um, Katie first and then Francis, um, do you want to come in and add, on, add to that? I think uh, Dom has, has covered it off pretty well. This side issue of the embargo that Ankara has been under since 2019, since um, Turkey purchased those Russian-made missile systems, critics have accused them of using this issue of Finland and Sweden's uh, membership in NATO as a bargaining chip uh, in order to force the US and the rest of NATO to lift this embargo that stops them buying fighter jets from the US. And it seems like that might happen. Um, the US is going to, the, the Joe Biden is going to meet with um, President Erdogan later on today and uh, they're expected to discuss this. So, um, I mean, whether or not uh, Turkey was was using this as a sort of bargaining chip, we can't say definitively, but it's definitely been suggested. Um, and now, as Dom says, their opposition to Finland and uh, Sweden joining NATO has uh, has been sorted out. And uh, yeah, they're paving the way for that entry to go ahead. I would only add to that that... Uh, you know, this has been obviously an ongoing saga of which many listeners will be will be aware. Um, <clears throat> having read some of the, the the wording of the of the agreement, I think it's fair to say that it's not quite as much of a victory for for Turkey in these negotiations as perhaps has uh, has been suggested. Certainly by them. I mean, a lot of the wording is quite uh, sort of diplomat speak for, um, you know, there will be ongoing discussions around this. Uh, we agree to do further, etc. It, it's not sort of cast iron commitments. And in that sense, of course, um, this, I think, should be a success for, for NATO because it effectively has forced President Erdogan and Turkey into uh, making a fundamental choice as to its trajectory. Was it going to continue to be, I suppose, a thorn in the in the side of, 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 of NATO unity? Or was it going to become a full you know, member of the club in the sense of, of, of all being on the same page? And we have obviously now ended up in the latter space. And whilst President Erdogan and Turkey may well try and say they've, they've received these uh, great concessions from Finland and Sweden joining, I think ultimately, actually, it, it, it's fair to see this in, in, in some ways as Turkey no longer being able to try and be the broker between sort of Russia and the West. This has forced it to to, to go on to on to into a more Western direction. Although, of course, the challenge for this in the in the long term picture is that clearly Turkey's modern regime is a more authoritarian one, a more theocratic one, and that does come into conflict, I think it's fair to say, with the fundamental values that used to underpin NATO. And so um, whilst at the moment on, on Ukraine, it seems that, that Turkey have been forced to concede into a, in, into a space, perhaps they would have liked to have been in, in a little bit more of a vaguer position. Ultimately, um, I think there's, there's more to run on this in, in the long term picture. Thank you, Francis. And thank you very much, Katie, as well. Um, just before we go on to talk about 
Dom's interview with uh, the uh, Klitschko brothers at the NATO summit, uh, there's a couple of more updates I think we should talk about. Um, Francis, there's been a, a kidnapping uh, in Kherson um, by the Russians. Can you tell us about this? Yes, well, the uh, the mayor of uh, Kherson, the elected mayor prior to the Russian occupation, we understand that he has been detained by unknown armed men and taken away. Um, the sources we're getting are from people on the ground, people reporting on Facebook, saying that he was put on a bus with the letter Z on, of course, the Z being a symbol of, of, uh, of the Russian forces, and taken away. Um, our understanding is that the mayor received another request from the puppet government in Curzon for cooperation, but he turned it down. They threatened to arrest him. Um, he refused to, uh, to, to to go along with their demands and, and as a consequence has been arrested. And again, this just speaks to uh, the, the, the ongoing repression of the remaining democratic elements in those regions controlled by Russia. Um, and, you know, we, his fate is unknown. So um, very concerning picture. We've heard a remark from a senior occupation administration official in Curzon who's confirmed the reports um, but dismissed the mayor, and I quote, as a poster boy for the Nazi community who, quote, has been hampering the process of denazification. Um, finally, he has been neutralised. So, as I say, we have no idea what charges he's been facing. We have no idea where he is. Um, but a concerning development, I would say, to, to say the least. And it speaks to, to the approach of Russia, which is in these in these territories, to try and install a puppet government. And anyone who resists that is, is to be arrested and, and effectively silenced. Um, so, yes, very concerning picture there. Thank you very much for that update, uh, Francis. Um, if there's nothing else to update us on, um, Dom Nichols, you um, interviewed the Klitschko brothers, Vitaly um, and Vladimir. What what did they say? Well, what what did they say? I, I missed the first bit because I was I have to admit I was a little bit starstruck. It's not every day you get to meet um, two uh, world champion boxers. Um, I, well, there were three three there if you include my undercrackers, but it was lovely to meet them. Vitaly Klitschko is the mayor of of Kiev. Um, and he's here at the, the NATO summit uh, w- with his brother, who is also very active in uh, in, in supporting uh, residents of the city and also wi- wider across across Ukraine. But we were chatting about the the situation there, um, and they were they were saying that actually Na- they are after NATO status. I mean, he's not. He was, he was very clear. He wasn't speaking for President Zelensky. This was his his opinion, but also uh, as his position as a, as a senior politician in the country. NATO status for us is the main priority, he said. And another quote: "We have to stop this war and keep Russian soldiers out of our out of our territory." Uh, he was very clear about um, how uh, the collective safety and and security guarantees, hard security guarantees, is what Ukraine has to have after the resolution of this war. I mean, NATO status is is seen as a gold standard there, and um, I think he would would admit that that you know, is probably some some way off at the moment. But hard security guarantees is what is what they're after. He said um, another quote: "Ukraine needs to join NATO." We will never be free from the Russian Federation. Russia is always aggressive to its neighbours. NATO status offers collective safety. I listened to more and more voices at this summit regarding how Ukraine and NATO have to work more closely. So they were they're very keen to pursue that that hard edge, that hard security guarantee, as you'd expect. Also said um, about the EU candidate status for the EU, he said, is very important for us because the reason for this census war is our wish to be a modern democratic European country. So, I mean, all, all the things you've, you've seen from... Um, from President Zelensky, echoed here through through his mayor mayor for Kiev, um, he was he was again uh, 
requesting more heavy weapons, more modern weapons. Um, these are say, I want to say thank you for the political support, the economic support, the humanitarian help and the defensive weapons being delivered to Ukraine. Um, and without the support of NATO and other democratic countries, it would be difficult to survive in this war against Russia. So very clear, the message uh, very strong, as you'd expect from um, well, from from a, a senior Ukrainian politician. But no no room for no no question there about um, uh, offering any 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 land for peace or saving Putin's face or anything like that. So very very hard there, as you'd expect. They're they're up for the fight, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was. It was just very good to to, to hear uh, in person and to see them um, not only um, sort of working in the room here after they after they finished with us. We managed to because so I set the set the interview up and then they came up and then they took a few minutes to walk around the the vast media centre here and they were just they were just mobbed. I mean, I was expecting to see journalists being cartwheeled across the uh, across the room because they were, you know as they sort of descended upon the two the two brothers. But no, they worked the room here very well and we could see down in the down in the main hall as well. That they were getting their message across to all the um, all the main uh, all the all the NATO leaders. So yeah, really really interesting to meet them. I, I tweeted out a photo of myself and Joe Barnes, the Telegraph's Brussels correspondent, we we um, with uh, Vitaly and Vladimir, and I had a number of questions there about uh, you know were you kneeling down, were you sitting down? No, that that's generally these guys are are, are enormous. Um, actually got a fist bump off um, off Vladimir and nearly, nearly broke my knuckles. But uh, no, it was very good to meet them. Um, they they were not they were not. I'm, you know, I make I make light of it a little bit, but you know, they were they were very serious here with a serious message, and uh, and it was it was great to see them out of the country in person, uh, working the, the floors of, of summits like this where they where they need to be. And just to say that Dom's interview with the Kletchkos will be in our podcast, so not on the live spaces, but in our podcast, Ukraine the Latest, tomorrow. So you can listen to the full thing there. I've heard it and it's it's absolutely excellent. So thank you, Dom. Um, Francis, I know you had a thought on this. And then let's go back to Dom after that to talk about uh, this idea of precision guided missiles. Yes, I would only add to, to underline something there that, that, that Dom said, that, of course, whilst Ukraine is very keen to be granted NATO status, I think it is very unlikely in the short term, um, given the risks involved from a NATO perspective of, of having a member in, of course, the rules of NATO being that if a country, a NATO member is attacked, that then all of those NATO countries are then th- th- thus thought at war. And so if you're in a situation where, um, you know, you have a country that is a member that is is likely to be a target long term of a, of a country like Russia, then there are risks inherent in that. I think, though, we should take very seriously, and this is echoing the remarks of President Zelensky, this idea of collective security being the most fundamental thing that needs to be gained long term, that there needs to be some sort of agreement where countries, perhaps like Britain, like Turkey, um, several others, I'd say will be candidates for this, that would guarantee the collective security of Ukraine in an eventual, in a sort of long term future as opposed to being purely in uh, NATO. Now, of course, the challenges of that are that, you know, what what countries would be willing to be part of it, what ones would, would feel that they could in a worst case scenario face off against a, a, a renewed Russian threat. These are all questions for the future, but I would say that they're highly relevant ones. Um, and, and ones that are no doubt at the forefront of the negotiations that are taking place behind closed doors between the Ukrainians and their and their Western allies. Um, I think, you know, we, we, we were talking many weeks ago about this question around concessions and it, would appear, it appeared that there was uh, 
President Zelensky was willing to concede certain things for this idea of a collective security pact. Um, so I think I just mentioned that again to underline the importance that the Ukrainians see in this, because they clearly think that whatever happens in this short term picture with the war in the next sort of weeks, months, um, possibly years, although we obviously hope not, that there will always be, for as long as there is a Soviet Ukraine, um, a threat of Russian invasion. And so they must, they feel they must create a secure future that will prevent there ever being a, a chance of that happening again. So big picture stuff, this. But I just thought I would underline as uh, what, what Don was saying there and, and the challenges and complexities around this. Thank you, Francis. I, I know, Dom, Dominic Nichols, that uh, you have an interview uh, coming up at half past. So very quickly, I, I know you wanted to talk about the uh, the idea of precision guided missiles and weapons in the Ukraine war. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, David. I just wanted to talk about this because people need to understand what precision means and why this attack uh, in Kremenchuk on the Amster shopping centre, why it might be, why Russia will say it is precise and it was against a legitimate target. And whilst the civilian deaths are regrettable, they are legal. And I, and I, I just want to explain the parameters of why some of that may be true and some of it may not be true. So let's have a look at precision. The way the way the military talks about precision when it talks about weapons is it uses this term CEP, circular error probable. And that is a circle around the, um, the, the, the place you want the round to land. Um, and it could be hundreds of meters. So, for example, these old KH-22 missiles that we think were launched against the Amster shopping center, they've got a CEP of 300 meters. So put your pin on the target you want to hit um, but pencil on a bit of string out 300 meters, draw a circle around that. And that, that is where the weapon can land and still be classified as precise to have, to have done everything that you expected of the weapon. Now, you know, not many targets are within that, that kind of zone. And because these are such old weapons, modern, modern weapons like the caliber missiles that we know Russia have, have a much smaller CEPs of, of 50 meters. Some weapons have, have sort of one or two meters. So they are very, very precise. But there's two points to consider. Firstly, that a weapon landing within its CEP can be can be uh, can count as precise. And secondly, it counts as precise if 50% of the weapons fired land in the CEP. The other 50% of weapons can land a meter outside the CEP, 10 meters, or a kilometer. It could go absolutely anywhere. So when we're talking precision missiles, got to be very careful about what we mean. Now, if you look at the um, if you look at Kremenchuk and look at the Amster shopping center, now there is um, the, the Kremash factory, the machine factory, just to the north, which in the past has repaired uh, military vehicles. And I think that was the justification, Russia's justification for launching this attack. So they might say, Russia could say that they used a precision missile and that the, um, the shopping center was within the CEP. Therefore, they could say that the, the missiles were precise. They landed where they were expected to land. And therefore, the civilian deaths were, were regrettable um, side effects of, of engaging, as they see it, a legitimate military target. However, um, let's have a look at that. The, the, we think two missiles hit, one uh, just inside the CEP and one um, and, and that hit the shopping centre, and one that landed outside. As I say, the one, the fifty percent of the missiles can land outside the CEP, and they can land God knows where—a meter, ten meters, wherever. They just go wherever, wherever you know, the system and the gravity takes them. So, these missiles could well have been precision, uh, precision weapons. They could have 
done what was expected and still landed on the Amster shopping centre and killed 18 people. And Russia can say, well, it was a legitimate military target and, and the weapon was precise. However, let's have a look at international humanitarian law. Now, first of all, uh, it says you can't attack civilians. So attacking targets, knowing civilians to be in it is is illegal. However, attacking legitimate military targets, knowing that civilian casualties is likely can be legal, but must be proportionate to the military necessity for carrying out that attack. So, for example, you, you, you need to be careful about the weapons you use. If you think there are going to be civilian casualties, then you shouldn't use a massive bomb like a KH-22 missile that's got a thousand kilograms warhead, travels up almost Mach 5, and like I say, has a CEP of 300 metres. They should have used, if they wanted to attack that target, the Kramash factory, they wanted to attack it, they should have used a much more precise missile that we know they have in their inventory. Having said that, of course, even a much more precise missile, 50% of them will land outside the CEP. So the uh, Amster shopping centre could still have been hit. But let's let's go back to when it's legal to to um, to take civilian life. So it has to be proportionate to the military necessity. And therefore, if you knowingly use older weapons or those with a, with a much higher CEP, which tend to be older weapons, um, and therefore the likelihood of hitting civilian targets either because weapons land outside the circular error probable the CEP or because they land inside but um, it's just such a large area that there's there's vast amounts of civilian infrastructure in there that is very very questionable whether or not that can be considered legal it would have to be challenged in in a court of law in the international in international court but it's highly questionable whether or not that is that is legal. So I just, um, the Defence Secretary is literally, he's waving at me now, I'm literally walking into the interview. I need to go, I'm afraid, but I just want to want people to bear in mind what precision means, what CEP means, and, and when it comes down to um, how uh, regrettable as it is, some civilian deaths are legal and some are not. And I've got to leave it there, I'm afraid. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to have to go. Thank you very much, Dom, and we hope uh, your interview with Ben Wallace goes well. Do let us know how that goes uh, in tomorrow's podcast. Um, Francis, what's your reaction to hearing that? Well, yes, this question about uh, weaponry and, 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 and its legal uses for the reasons that Dom was talking about is, is a very interesting one. I think will be very relevant in any future trials that we may see of Russian generals, perhaps the Russian hierarchy in the in the long term. I mean, the weapons clearly that are being used by Russia here, um, some of them are... Uh, very high tech. Others are far less so. It would appear that the one that was deployed, yes, um, a couple of days ago, was 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 a much older weapon. And again, it just speaks to the rather retrograde uh, Russian state of the Russian army um, compared to perhaps what was expected. We've spoken many times on this podcast in, in, in analysing the state of the Russian army and and how essentially it's been. <sighs> core elements of it have been allowed to degrade over a long period of time and and you know one could say that this is this is further evidence of that that the weaponry that is being deployed by um by russia is is, is just you know frankly unethical in the modern world given its imprecision and, and and everything else so i think this will be will be highly highly relevant in 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 future discussions thank you francis um i think we're starting to come towards the end of our time um for today's recording um just can we pull back a little, little bit? Today's a, a historic day. Uh, NATO expansion is on the cards. The border with Russia, or NATO's border with Russia, is going to expand by a huge amount uh, of space. Um, Francis, what's your sort of historical uh, view of today? 
Well, I, of course, it's it's highly significant. I don't want to to, to overplay the, the 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 degree to which the Russian border is is now um, surrounded in in inverted commas by uh, by NATO powers. It's still a minuscule uh, percentage of the entirety of the Russian border. Um, so I don't want us to sort of be falling into that trap of 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 of, of saying that you know in some way uh, Russia is surrounded because it, it 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 definitely is not. But no, certainly in the historical sense, this is uh, an immensely significant day. Um, And it speaks volumes, I think, that we are almost... It's very easy for us to just sort of accept that this is this has happened as a logical um, next step after the conversations that have been taking place in recent weeks. But to expand NATO in this way, um, I think would have been seen as impossible only six months ago, um, and so quickly as well. Uh, it, it's it's so no, of course it's it's an immensely um, important moment. I think uh, to, to thinking about this in the broader historical sense, I think you have to say that if 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 this war is to be understood in the future as being Russia attempting to show the West that it could not be um, unified and uh, to essentially lead to, to, to contribute to a splintering of the West and to create a climate of fear that any encroachment on its uh, spheres of influence would in some way be met with um, such hostile force that there would be no chance of there being any such um uh, expansion of NATO or otherwise, of course, a lot of this began because of um, the issue of whether Ukraine would be able to join the European Union. Um, so uh, has has completely backfired. I mean, you know, in in that sense, this is this is a, just another sort of nail in the coffin of of, of Putin's project. Where, if, if I can articulate it as such, um, with regard to the war in Ukraine, uh, he, he, this is just another clear sign, perhaps one of the clearest signs yet, of his total failure um, on the diplomatic front um, as far as NATO is concerned. Now, that's not to say there aren't, of course, still tensions within NATO. Um, Certain powers, of course, as we were talking about yesterday, have a stance, I think, that is uh, more perhaps conciliatory long term towards Russia because they want to bring them back into the European fold, whether that be for alleviating the cost of living crisis or because they fear this idea of humiliating Russia and the damage that that will do. But broadly, I think you have to say that after this G7 meeting, there is a broad front that has been put forward and it is one that is much more robust than we perhaps would have predicted um, only a couple of weeks ago. So yes, I think a highly significant moment, one that historians will no doubt... um, uh, measure as such in 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 the in the long term and in, and in the future, but there's still, of course, a very long way to go in all this. Um, at the end of the day, for all of this talk of nature expansion, this is about acting as a deterrence for future escalation. It, it does not necessarily change the reality on the ground in Ukraine, um, and so the, the the battle there is still very much being fought. And one could argue in the balance. I, I spoke yesterday about this fundamental unknown quantity, which is the extent to which the attritional war favours Ukraine or favours Russia. And there are so many different diverse opinions on that. Patrick Sanders, the chief of the defence staff, who I spoke about yesterday, clearly thinks that there is a chance that Russia will learn the lessons of this war and will, by the end of the conflict will be in a, perhaps a stronger position than it was in the beginning because they will mobilise more men. They will um, uh, be able to to get use more resources against uh, the Ukrainians, and thus, as a consequence, he would argue that time is is short. You know, if victory is to come and, and, and an offensive pushed by the Ukrainians to push the Russians out, it needs to be in the short term rather than the sort of long term. So. 
a lot still um, very much uncertain. And, and of course, things could still, you know, go, go, go wrong. Um, I think it's fair to say on, on, it, within the sort of Ukraine battlefield, although I, my own view will be very well um, known to listeners. I think it's actually a Ukrainian war does favour Ukraine more, but I won't go into all of that today. But there's still a lot more to go, as I say, on the strategic picture. But I think you have to say that considering where we were only a matter of weeks ago, that the fact that Finland and Sweden have now joined, Turkey has offensively been forced to make a decision and align more with the West, and this sense of robustness and support to Ukraine is a remarkable achievement and one that I think that the free world should celebrate. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.